0: It's a great song this morning to help us to begin to think about the life of Christ and the death of Christ as we look into that portion of God's word where he begins to move towards the cross. And so let's bow together for a word of prayer and ask God to help us this morning. Our Father, we do indeed thank you for your great love for us. Truly, it is so vast that it is beyond our ability to measure. It is, as Paul wrote, a love that surpasses knowledge. It is a love so vast that even Paul had to pray that we might be able to comprehend its breadth and its length and its height and its depth. It is a love that is seen in the person of Christ, your only begotten Son. As he willingly and freely goes to the cross our sin upon his shoulders to pay that ransom price incurred by our own sin and father as we now look into your word we are mindful that we will be looking at the immediate circumstances that brought Jesus to the cross help us even as we look again and reflect on these familiar events to come to a greater understanding of the magnitude and depth of your love. We now call on your Holy Spirit to help us with that as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in our uh, ongoing journey through the Gospel of John, we arrive today at really a a critical moment, and important transition uh, in the Gospel. John, or Jesus by this point who is the Son of God, has finished his public ministry. He's finished his sort of journey around Israel where he ministered in various different ways to various different peoples, and he's just finished his private ministry to his disciples as he spent time with them in that upper room, starting in John chapter 13, washing their feet, telling them about the coming Holy Spirit, trying to comfort their troubled hearts. And now in chapter 17, as he has just prayed For them as we just made our way through that wonderful chapter of john 17 and so from now uh, right through to the end of easter actually through the end of april we're going to be working our way through the events that led jesus to the cross and of course then his glorious resurrection so probably from now until the middle to the end of march we are going to be on good friday So you might wonder, when we get to Good Friday, it seems to go so fast and we get through so quickly. Well, we're going to be taking our time. We're going to be on Good Friday, right until Good Friday. Well, We'll stop before Good Friday. We'll be at the resurrection by then. And then by April, we'll spend that whole month talking about the resurrection. So turn to John chapter 18. And I want to read for us this morning verses 1 to 11. That first section. We do have some Bibles, by the way. If you didn't bring one this morning, we have some in the chair racks in front of you, and you'll find John 18 on page 904. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The garden where divinity met humanity. If you saw that title, you might have thought that we're going to talk about Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 this morning. That's where it says that God planted a garden. And that's where he put the man that he created and where he first talked to the man and the woman. And that he told them that they could eat from every tree except for one. The garden is where the divine God created And met the first humans. But that garden and that tree and those words from God were the exact issue that the snake used to tempt Adam and Eve to doubt God's good word. That garden was the place where Adam and Eve sinned against the divine creator and plunged all of humanity into sin. And that garden is the place from which it says in the last verse of Genesis 3, the Lord God drove out the man. And he actually set angels with swords in front of the garden so that no one could get in. That garden was a place where God and man met, but then tragically it represented a place where God and man would be separated because of the same kind of sin and rebellion that were in Adam and Eve that we now see in ourselves and that we now commit ourselves. But here in this scene I just read in John 18, we find Jesus going to a garden. He went out with his disciples where there was a garden. Now, I can't say for sure if Jesus was intentionally linking Genesis 2 with this scene But I would not discount that John, writing under the inspiration of God, is making that connection. At the very least, at this garden, we see again the goodness of divinity meet with the very worst aspects of humanity. And lest we get tempted to put ourselves above the people that set themselves against Jesus, remember the words of the song that we just sang. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. The only boast we have is in Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection. So let's go back this morning to that place. That place, as it says in verse 1, where there was a garden. Even in this first scene that will eventually have Jesus nailed upon a cross, we we see the depth of God's great love for his people through the person of Jesus. And we also see something of the depth of human sinfulness that required the Son of Man to die in the place of sinners. We see the glory of God the Son, and we see the ugliness of human sin. And it starts here in this place where there was a garden. Have you ever been to some of the places where some great battles and wars have been fought. My wife, Marlene, grew up in a beautiful area of Canada called Niagara on the Lake Ontario. It's part of a bigger area called the Niagara Escarpment. It's right in between Lake Ontario and Lake Erie with the Niagara River joining those two lakes, which of course includes the mighty and daunting Niagara Falls. It's filled with fruit orchards and grapes, lots of huge trees, lots of lush vegetation. There's some great places around there to to explore and hike. We regularly used to go on Sunday afternoons through the Niagara Gorge and and hike through there. But when you go hiking in that area, every once in a while, you'll come across a monument or a marker of some kind telling you about a battle that happened at that spot as part, part of the War of 1812. A war that happened in that exact spot and that surrounding area between American and British forces. And as we stood there, as we kind of come up with these markers, it was hard to imagine that a place so beautiful and peaceful was at one particular time, a, a place where battles were fought, a place where blood was shed, a place where lives were lost. I had similar feelings last year as I had the opportunity to drive by myself for a while through some of the areas around Missouri and Kentucky and, and Tennessee, some of those southern states. And I imagined, and there was little markers here and there too, some of the plantations that used to exist there in the, in the 1800s and the slave routes that they would use to, to escape from their slave owners and so forth. All those places were filled with Beauty. there were beautiful garden-like places, yet places that saw intense human evil. Now, I've never been to Israel, but I know a couple of you have, and you've been to this area just outside Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley, in between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. And I'm thinking it might look a little bit like the Niagara area. Huge trees, lush olive groves, those sorts of things. But today, as you stand there, as you are a tourist in those places, it's hard to imagine what happened in that place, is it not? Where there was a garden. These things that we just read about. So let's set the scene. Or let's let John, as he's writing, set the scene for us. And just maybe an aside first as we go through this part of jesus's life and his death we have four different gospels right we got matthew mark luke and john and they all give the the same general order of events but they all sort of highlight a few different details of the events and that's mostly because they each have a different reason for writing so for example john straight up tells us why he's writing this if you want to Flip over for a second to John chapter 20 in verse 31. Last verse of chapter 20. He says, but these things are written. So he's going to tell us why I've written these things. These things are written. Why? So that you may believe. So you may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then by believing, you might have life in his name. So, so John tells us why he's writing this. He's, he's out to show how it is That Jesus is God's son. And so when he doesn't include certain details that are in other Gospels, and does include certain details that aren't in other Gospels, it comes down to that reason, mainly. We can actually see this even as John sets the scene. One of the things John wants to emphasize is that Jesus, even here, is in total control of everything that's happening during this whole time. Look at verse 1 says, when he had spoken these words, so I think there he's actually not only talking about his prayer in chapter 17, but everything he spoke from verses, from chapters 14 to 16. When he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden. Jesus knew exactly what was coming next. Way back at the beginning of chapter 13, it said, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And now, he knew exactly where he needed to go to set everything into motion. That place where he needed to go was this garden. Why this garden? Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So, Pay attention now. Does this sound like Jesus is trying to get out of his arrest? No. He is going where he knew that the betrayer would find him. This is not like that scene from The Sound of Music, where the von Trapp family singers take a a secret exit in the concert hall to escape from, from the Nazi police force there in Austria. Jesus is not hatching up an escape plan here. He's intending, he's intending to meet the betrayer. Jesus knew that Judas knew that place. You can see it again in verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So, just to recap again, verse 1, Jesus went out where there was a garden, and there's already intention there, and And purpose, he went out. Verse 3, Judas went there. And so Judas is coming from one place. Jesus and his disciples coming from another place. And they meet right there. And Jesus, already we can see, was in total control of what was going on. This was his hour. Jesus knew this was his time. He intentionally went to the place where he knew he would meet up with Judas and and this posse of, of Roman and Jewish authorities. And then the slam dunk is in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus came forward. Now, John doesn't record the part that Judas kissed him. He, He wants to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he wants to show that Jesus is totally in control of everything that's going on here. Judas and his gang, his posse, show up with lanterns and weapons. Why? Because they were thinking that they were going to have to find someone who is hiding in the olive groves. And they would have to take him by force. And so they come with the equivalent of torches and billy clubs. But they didn't need them. See that here? Jesus goes right where they're going to be he meets them right out in the open and he steps forward another reason they didn't need lanterns is because right during the passover it was a full moon it would have been it would have been lots of light so they obviously thought that they were going to have to go in amongst the trees and try to try to get them out with lanterns flashlights the the um, modern day equivalent would be flashlights right And he meets them right at the open, and even in verse 5, he even identifies himself. So there's none of the resistance that apparently even Judas expected by this time. Well, what's going on? What's going on is that Jesus is willingly stepping out to die. He knows all of this needs to happen in order for him to go to the cross and to atone for the sins of his people. He's doing this willingly. He's doing this in obedience to the Father, This was his time, and he almost steps right into it, even knowing what he's about to endure. This shows that Jesus, his number one priority is obedience to his Father's will. And what's about to happen in those hours to come is going to show the depth of our sin, which will in turn reveal the Father's deep love for us. So undeserving but such an incomprehensible love for rebellious sinners who deserve nothing but God's wrath. And again, this all happens where there is a garden. In some ways, all of our problems started in a garden, that place where man and woman first disobeyed the Lord God, and in some ways, it's in a garden where the Son of God began to make his way to that place that would begin to serve as the remedy to the problem man and woman created by disobeying the lord god and plunging ourselves into sin so that's the setting and then in verses five to nine and even verses 10 and 11 we get to the first interrogation but this interrogation is going to throw us for another loop we would expect That since Jesus is about to be bound and arrested, as it says in verse 12, that this cohort of soldiers and officers would interrogate Jesus, seeking to find something by which they can arrest him. But instead, we find here Jesus doing the interrogating, and Jesus making the demands. Jesus is taking charge of this situation in which he is supposedly the victim, or the criminal, and so again, in this scene, Jesus is portrayed as in total control of what's going on. But he's also shown to be the son who is determined to fulfill his mission and in providing for his followers before he leaves. So look again at verse 5. So they, he says in verse 4, whom do you seek? In verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, then let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he'd spoken of those whom he gave me. I've lost not one. And then Simon Peter steps forward, having a sword. He drew it and struck the high priest's servant. Uh, servant cutting off his right ear and uh, identifies the servant's name there and so jesus said to peter for your sword i put your sword back into his sheath shall i not drink the cup that the father has given me so look here at jesus's undeniable authority verse five and verse seven basically repeat each other jesus initiates the conversation did you notice he he takes control of the situation and he takes control of the mob and says who are you looking for they say jesus And he identifies himself. It's pretty straightforward. But there are also some important details in those words. Important details woven in between the verses here. The first is in the way that Jesus worded his answer. When they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, he doesn't just say, that's me. Put up his hand. Jesus identifies himself by saying, I am he. For the Jewish contingent in that mob, they would have recognized instantly those words. This is how God identified himself to Moses. Remember when Moses was at the burning bush, he said, you know, who should I tell them is sending me? And and God comes forward and says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent me, has sent you. And so here, Jesus was saying that he was God. He'd used those words before with them even. Some of them that were in the crowd in John 8 might have been the same ones that were in the crowd here. John eight fifty eight. Even before Abraham was, I am. You want to know what those religious leaders thought about Jesus applying those words from God to himself? Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. That's what they thought. Of those words, they knew Jesus was making himself out to be God. Those words are packed full of divine authority. I am he. And look what happens next. Back in John chapter 18 now. This is really something. Verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. John inserts his own eyewitness account of what happened when Jesus spoke those words. This is almost a, a Keystone Cops kind of scene. They, they sort of fell like human dominoes. But this is the sort of thing that only happens when God speaks. God's words alone have the power to knock people over. They have that kind of effect all through the scriptures. We read about Ezekiel. When he encountered the Lord, it says he fell on his face not only once but twice. Same with Daniel. Saul, before he became Paul, fell to the ground when Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus. This is the kind of effect the words of God have. In Jesus' life, we see even that the winds and the waves obey him when he speaks. And here we see it again. Notice in verse 4, it said that Jesus came forward. And in verse 6, it said that Judas and his mob fell backwards. They drew back and fell down fell to the ground at the divine words of the Son of God, I am he. And all of this goes to show again that Jesus is, in, is really in control of all of this. That is the point that John is driving home. When we think of the Passion Week and everything that Jesus went through, we have to remember that Jesus was not an unsuspecting and surprised victim. John is painting him as being in total charge and of willingly going through this agony and this torture and this ridicule in obedience to the Father. In willing and glad obedience to the Father. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He knew he needed to go through this. He was prepared, he was ready, and he was willing to do this for sinners, for sinners like you and me. I find it interesting that he asks them again. You know, that second time you asked them, they they might have still been on the ground. Why again? Because he wants to make another point there in verse 8. First his words knock them to the ground, and now he's making demands of these so-called authority figures, these Roman policemen that are there with these Jewish temple leaders. Let these men go, he commands. Again, this shows that Jesus is running the show here. And Judas and this mob are simply a means of achieving the ends that Jesus desires. And so here we see again this wonderful picture of Jesus protecting these poor disciples. He's already made so many promises to them that he's going to give them the Holy Spirit, that he will not lose any, that he will keep them in his name. And they, for their part, likely would have been arrested right with Jesus if he hadn't said this. But Jesus knew that their faith, by, at this time, they would obviously grow stronger in their faith as the Holy Spirit came in acts. But they, Jesus knew at this point that their faith was, was too weak to handle being arrested at this point. And John adds, this was in order to keep his promise when he said before, I have not lost one. He said that, Just in chapter 17, verse 12, he said that way back in chapter 6, verse 39, even in chapter 10, he had said that he's the good shepherd and that none of his sheep would perish and that no one would snatch them out of his hand. And so here in John 18, as Jesus is about to get arrested, he commands the mob to let these men go. See what Jesus is doing here? What else he's doing? He's actually giving a foretaste of what his death would accomplish. He's in effect already saying, here I am, it's me that you want, and it's them that will go free. It's me that you want, it's them that will go free, it's me that needs to die, and in my dying, they will go free. I will become a captive, so that all those who are covered by my death can be freed from their imprisonment to sin. In this scene, we already see the great love of Jesus who willingly takes the place of his sheep. And not only takes the place of his sheep, but lays down his life for his sheep. But we start to see a human element in this scene as well, don't we? We see two characters that are highlighted in this first section. One of them is Judas, and the second one is Simon Peter. They have similarities. They're they're both named as followers of Jesus at one point but they end up going in total opposite directions by the time we get to John 18 Judas has already been identified by Jesus as the betrayer he had already left Jesus and now he shows up again to carry out his treacherous act in verse 5 we read an observation about Judas where it shows whose side he's now on You notice that little comment there from from John as he's writing, where he says, Judas who betrayed him, that is Jesus, Judas who betrayed Jesus was standing with them. He was standing with them. He was standing with a band of soldiers. He was no longer standing with the disciples. He was standing with them. He had declared himself. He had chosen his side, and it was not with Jesus. Judas was standing with them. We know what happened to Judas in the other Gospels, you know, that he had sold Jesus, that he had betrayed Jesus for, for some silver, for some money, and then he goes with that money, he goes out and buys a field, and what does he do with the money, with the field that he bought? He hangs himself there. But in the Gospel of John, this is the last time that Judas is ever mentioned. The last word on Judas in the Gospel of John is that he rejected Jesus, he betrayed Jesus, and he declared himself to be in opposition to Jesus with Jesus's captors. And then he's gone. He fades off the sea and he's forgotten. I remember one time hearing a pastor preach on this and he asked the the, the uh, asked the people out there, if, put up their hand if anybody was named Judas or if they knew anybody named Judas. And, of course, no one put up their hand and then he asked Is anybody here named Peter? Anybody have a middle name of Peter? Anybody know someone named Peter? And lots of people would put up their hands. It's Judas that is forgotten. Peter is remembered by God's grace, as we'll see at the end of John. Friends, the person in the presence of Jesus forces everyone to declare themselves. All through this gospel, you see this call from Jesus to believe in me. And all through the gospel, you see people declaring themselves to be either on one side or the other. Jesus is polarizing this way. Judas's choice revealed who he really was. Maybe you're here today and have not declared your allegiance to Jesus, your faith in Jesus, your trust in Jesus. Listen, because you are here today and because you are here today hearing this offer of salvation you still have the opportunity to do that. It's not too late for you. Remember, we saw how John wrote down all of these things so that people might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, they might have life. That is Christ's offer to you. If you receive him, if you believe in his name, it says in chapter 1, he will give you the right to become a child of God. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son will not perish but have eternal life. In John chapter 3, he said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In John chapter 6. So friend, come to Jesus. He is offering himself to you. The reality is that you are a sinner and God's justice demands that your sins be paid for. But in his love, he has provided a savior, this very savior, this Jesus, who would pay the death penalty that you deserve. But you have to repent and believe in Jesus. If you do that, then Scripture says that you don't have to pay the penalty of your sins because Jesus already did. Jesus already did. and So that's why you have to trust Christ. That's what you have to trust Christ for. That he paid the penalty for the sins that you deserve. He lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you should have died. So align yourself to Jesus. Look to Christ. Treasure him above all things. Believe in him. Well, that was Judas, and then there's Simon Peter. Now, if we know anything about Peter, we know that Peter is always the one that steps forward and, and takes charge for good or for ill. He's, he's all at once uh, boldly courageous and foolishly impulsive. We often find him acting and speaking before he thinks. His actions and his words are mostly well-meaning, but often mistaken and misdirected, at least before the cross. And here in this scene, ironically, right after Jesus speaks up to ensure the protection of the disciples, including Peter, Peter draws his sword and springs into action to protect Jesus of all things, as if Jesus needed protection. Now, I'm not sure what he was hoping to accomplish By doing this, like 11 former fishermen and tax collectors were going to overcome a a cohort of soldiers. And we know a little bit about cohorts. There are probably at least 100 people there, maybe more. This was not just a small group with weapons. You know, really, Peter? Like, what are you going to accomplish through this? It was a feeble effort. And on top of that, you notice what he did when he tried to cut off the head of a servant? He, He actually missed He went for the head and got all ear. (laughs) But besides that, it was totally pointless. Peter wanted to save Jesus from the cross. While Jesus was about to save Peter through the cross. If Peter had been successful in saving Jesus, Jesus would not have saved his people from their sins. So Peter had good intentions, we have to give him that but he was operating on a totally human level. And we're going to see that about Peter in full force in the next section, where he denies Jesus as Jesus had predicted and as Peter had said steadfastly that he would never do. But in here he's again operating on a human level, and in that way he would have become an obstacle to the Father's good intentions from before the foundation of the world. That's exactly where Jesus goes next. You just think about how Peter's actions should have made that mob go into attack mode, but Jesus somehow diffused the whole thing just through a word. He tells Peter to put his sword away, and then he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus here is operating on the Father's timetable and carrying out the Father's plans. Drink the cup refers to the cross it's associated with a cup of god's wrath against sinners that cup that the father has given him is his suffering and death on the cross where he would bear the penalty for the sins of his people even though he himself knew no sin jesus knew the father's will was for jesus for the good shepherd to lay down his life for his sheep and that's exactly what he resolved to do and it's exactly what he did no human intervention, no human effort, was, whether it was the betrayal of a traitor from his inner circle or whether it was the good intentions of a loyal friend or whether it was a huge band of Roman soldiers was going to interrupt Jesus from the grand purpose and plan of the Father to provide salvation for his people through the substitutionary and atoning death of his own beloved Son. Such was the love of God for his people. Such was the love of God for you. Such was the love of Christ for the Father that he would willingly and freely drink the cup that the Father gave him, and in so doing would pay the penalty of my sin and your sin. And it all began here, where there was a garden. That place where once again God met with humankind in all its ugliness, in a place where they had come to take and bind the Savior. Yet it was in that garden where we also see God reach out to sinful humanity because of his great love which is revealed supremely in the person of his son. In the first garden, that place where everything was very good, the first humans represented by Adam failed miserably. But in this garden, where everything was meant for evil, the perfect human, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in one place in 1 Corinthians 15 called the last Adam, interestingly enough, obeyed perfectly and began the process where he would reconcile himself with us and meet with us once again so that we would be with him forever, never separated. What does all that mean for us? Let me close for, with some words out of Romans chapter 5. I could actually read that whole chapter, but let me just read verses 18 and 19 close to the end. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, talking about the garden, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness... Leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, the first garden, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Isn't that wonderful? And that righteousness of Christ can become ours, can become yours, as you turn from your sins and put your faith in the Son's obedience which reached its culmination as he drank the the cup that the Father gave him and as he died on the cross. You see, Jesus was the better Adam, the final Adam. And by his obedience, the many will be made righteous through faith. And that, my friends, is the good news of the gospel that we now live in and that we now enjoy. And that we one day will, because of the gospel, will hope to see Christ again, which is our sure hope, which is like an anchor for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your one and only son. We thank you that you sent your one and only begotten son to reconcile sinners to yourself. We thank you that he obeyed you, willingly, perfectly. We know that in the cross you are glorified and that the Son is glorified, but we also realize that all of this came at such a great cost to you and to your Son. And yet all of this accomplishes such a great and undeserved blessing and and benefit for us. We thank you for allowing us again here this morning, to catch a glimpse at your amazing plan of redemption and how Jesus carried it out so completely and with such great resolve. And through all this, we are again struck by the depth of your love, that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, that he would be wounded for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, We thank you and praise you for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You're dismissed.